The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to fapc.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Every autumn at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church, we concentrate our spiritual attention on some aspect of the Christian faith through a sermon series. This fall, our focus turns to the second book in the Bible, Exodus. The story of the Hebrew people who live under the thumb of a cruel Pharaoh and those people's eventual escape from that Pharaoh. Why pick Exodus for study right now? Well, Exodus describes a series of disasters, plagues, that bring a whole society to its knees. Someone recently said to me that devastating, devastating hurricanes and wildfires on top of a deadly pandemic made her wonder if swarms of locusts could be far behind. For such a time as this, Exodus. Exodus also tells a story about oppression and tension between different nations, different peoples, different races. For such a time as this, Exodus. Finally, Exodus describes political wrangling, demands for justice and freedom, and the human struggle for law and order. Can you say 10 commandments? This is the story of people who face enormous challenges in pursuit of God's blueprint for a better society, a promised land. For such a time as this, Exodus. I cannot imagine a more perfect slice of scripture for this moment in history. So my friends, let's get busy. Let's dig in as the good book opens the curtain on one of the world's oldest and most profound stories. Listen now for God's word to you as it echoes to us from Exodus chapter 1, beginning with the first verse. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, 
The Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Python and Ramesses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. This, my friends, is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Exodus, the gripping saga of the Hebrew people moving from, from bondage to freedom begins in a sleepy, almost melancholy way. It, it opens by listing the names of the tribes of Israel, and then it notes that Joseph, the beloved patriarch, and indeed all the people of Joseph's generation have died. The old guard is gone. A new era is dawning. Those who went before are but memories, if that. The book of Exodus drives this point home with a somber announcement. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. We could easily push this verse, this rhetorical crumb aside. But that, my friends, would be a mistake. Why? Because this simple sentence points to the root of a whole lot of trouble. Really. How can it, how can it possibly matter whether Egypt's fresh-faced ruler, this, this new pharaoh, knows his Sunday school stories or not? To answer, we should start by noting that the good book has already devoted a lot of ink to Joseph. The, the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis focus on Joseph. And there's a reason for this. Joseph's actions changed the course of history for the Hebrew people and for other people in that part of the world too. Let's take a closer look. Many of us remember stories about Joseph as a young boy. As a child, Joseph basked in his daddy's love. To, to show his affection, Joseph gifted him with a rainbow dream coat. This gift didn't sit so well, though, with Joseph's brothers. They became jealous of that coat, so angry over the uneven love that it symbolized, that they tied Joseph up and faked his death. They sold the boy into slavery, bloodied his robe, and took the soiled garment back to his father Jacob. The poor man wept, believing that his precious son had been eaten by wolves. And that's just the beginning of the story. Joseph, the slave, ends up in Egypt. And in this foreign land, aided by God and his talent for interpreting people's dreams, 
Joseph starts to make a name for himself. He, he rises through Egyptian society, and eventually he's summoned to the king's throne room. There, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and, and Pharaoh comes to trust Joseph. The king names just Joseph his chief advisor, the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. Together, these two leaders then set about preparing for a seven-year famine soon to descend on the region. As this deadly drought unfolds, Joseph feeds the Egyptian people from grain he has carefully stored. He, he also rescues people from nearby lands. In, in fact, Joseph reconciles with his brothers and brings his whole family, the Hebrew people, to Egypt. It's an inspiring story. An immigrant, Joseph rises to a position of power and great responsibility in Egypt. A savvy administrator, Joseph strategizes with the head of state to make decisions that ultimately enable thousands of people, people of different nationalities and races, to pull together and survive an awful season. The book of Exodus starts by, by tipping its hat to Joseph. And then, in a subtle and sad way, Exodus sets us up to watch the patriarch's noble accomplishments wash away. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Egypt's new pharaoh did not know the history of the devastating famine. He did not know stories about the foreigner who kept not, not one, but, but two nations from starvation. This, this green monarch couldn't be bothered with ancient tales of successful partnerships. Instead, says Exodus, this new pharaoh spent his days building cities and naming them after himself. He, he woke up every morning with new plans for, for polishing his own legacy, for burnishing his own precious image. So we're not surprised, not hardly, when this self-absorbed king, this man who could not remember Joseph, opens his window gazes out across the land and starts to scowl. Look at these Hebrews. There's so many of them. They could threaten my way of life. They could put our culture at risk. Surveying the land, Pharaoh doesn't see friends who have walked through tough times together. He sees changing demographics. He doesn't see strength in these second and third generation immigrants. He sees rivals. Pharaoh is afraid. He's afraid because he doesn't know Joseph. And instead of taking steps to get acquainted with Joseph's people, Pharaoh opts for a shortcut. Crouched in some unhealthy corner of his mind, Pharaoh makes up his own story as to who these Hebrews really are. They don't think like us. They don't look like us. They're, they're multiplying so fast. What if they turn on us? What if they want to do violence to us? What if they are our enemies? We better take preemptive action before this situation gets out of hand. 
The book of Exodus describes what happens next. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. There you have it. Exodus is the story of a once diverse nation, a society committed to a let's work together ethic. Joseph and the king stand side by side figuring things out, but then time passes. An insecure leader ascends the throne. This new fellow cannot be bothered with history or truth. He, he stakes his rule, his whole rule, on a false narrative, and in so doing, Pharaoh plunges Egypt into a season of fear, oppression, and hatred, a literal death spiral. Now, Pharaoh, of course, is the obvious villain in this story, but we shouldn't sit too easy, my friends, cheering his demise. Exodus is sneaky. The good book has bigger fish to fry than some long-dead Egyptian tyrant. Exodus tells us Pharaoh's story because Exodus is after us, our hearts, our ethics. Exodus is going to tell us over and over this fall that political rulers are not the only folk tempted to bear false witness. We all love to make up stories. Every day we, we look at other people and say to ourselves, I know who they are. We do it to family members. We repeat old narratives, rarely checking to see if the stories are still true, if they were ever true. Bobby, he's always the lucky one. Sally has always been so timid. We label each other with confident ease. I know who you are, who you really are. I was once invited to a family dinner by a woman who had three adult sons. Over roast chicken, she told them, in turn, you, you were always the smart one, and then you've always been the hardest worker. And to the third, you have the sunniest demeanor. On the surface, it sounded positive. Clearing the table, though, one son leaned over and said to the other, just finished my PhD and I still have no shot at being the smart one. There was poison in this little parlor game. And that's how we treat those we love. When it comes to the conflicts that threaten the very fabric of our society, the gloves come off. Black Lives protesters are really all a bunch of violent looters. All cops are racist. All Democrats are idiots. All Republicans are heartless. None of these statements are true, but they come so easily to our lips right now. Why? The answer, psychologists say, is surprisingly simple fear. Other people with dreams and agendas at which we can only guess, other people 
scare us. When Pharaoh stands on his balcony, he looks at the children of Israel, people whose story he does not know, and he feels anxious. What are these people's intentions? Pharaoh has no clue, and this scares him. Uncertain about what he's seeing, Pharaoh makes up a story. These folk are, are dangerous. We'd best take action. I can sense where this is headed. It's us versus them. Egyptian versus Hebrew, good versus bad. I know who these people are. They are the enemy. And here's the thing, the truly awful thing. Pharaoh turns his anxious description of the world into reality. In humiliating the Hebrew people, the Egyptians actually do turn their neighbors into enemies. This is the tragedy of Exodus. This brutal conflict, the conflict at the heart of this story, could have been prevented. It could have been avoided if only Pharaoh would have taken the time to get to know Joseph, to get to know the concerns the dreams, the, the true story about the people he could see laboring in the fields and streets of Egypt. In this contentious season, Exodus, my friends, waves a cautionary flag. Watch out. Prejudice is more than a moral failing. It can be a society's undoing. Fifteen years ago, Hurricane Katrina dealt a tremendous blow to New Orleans. In cities as far away as Atlanta, churches were told to prepare to receive refugees. The church I served then readied itself. When one of the church's neighbors got wind of our plans, he came to see me. Pastor, he said, you don't know these people. You don't know what you'll be bringing to our neighborhood. No, sir, I responded. I do not know these people. But neither, I suspect, do you. When we get frightened, we make up stories, alarming stories. When we get scared, we, we stop doing our homework. We don't take time to get to know Joseph to get to know folk whose history is intertwined with our own, whose dreams for their children are held with as much passion as our own, whose hopes and wisdom are worthy dialogue partners to our own hopes and wisdom. Maybe, my friends, maybe the divisions in our society feel so doggone intractable because we've already made up our minds. We already know who these people are. I wonder, I wonder if the first step toward healing the deep divides cutting through this country begins with admitting that we do not know each other, not in the ways that count, we do not know each other's most important stories. We do not know Joseph. This past summer, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church 
asked a core group of congregational leaders to convene and guide this community in reflecting on and responding to racism. Two weeks ago, this group invited me to stop by one of their Zoom meetings to hear an update. As the group oriented me to their work and their thinking, they spoke at length about the affection that they had developed for each other, an affection that steadily deepened as they told each other their stories. Stories about encounters with racism, stories about how their own attitudes about race had developed over time. This experience has proved so powerful for our anti-racism group, they are now recommending that we all do the same. They will be inviting us this coming year to embrace a season of honest storytelling. Exodus would approve. The best response to political propaganda and the projections of fearful minds is simple, unfiltered, and low-tech. It is active listening and honest storytelling. Now this isn't, my friends, rocket science, but it is holy work. It's holy because any activity that connects us with our neighbors is sacred. It is also holy because this work reminds us that the real story, the deep truth, the only story that truly matters doesn't belong to Pharaoh. It belongs to God, the author of life, who stands above all race-baiting demagogues, weaving a sacred saga, the story of those who walk the rocky road of justice and freedom, determined to make their way to the promised land. And that, my friends, is where Exodus plans to take us. My friends, on this homecoming Sunday, resolve to approach the world with Christ's peace in your heart. Have courage. Hold fast to what is good. Return to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Spend time getting to know Joseph. Amen.